0: turn in your Bibles to 126. Psalm 126. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find Psalm 126 on page 501. We're in the middle of our summer sermon series on the Psalms, and uh, as, I, as I sort of said last week, I've Appreciated this series for the benefit that it's brought to my own spiritual life. All too often, my impatience in an instant on, grab and go, Snapchat, Twitter sort of world means I don't fully appreciate the richness of biblical poetry. There's there's such depth in these songs that were given to God's people over the centuries. Uh, it, It requires chewing it over. It requires um, turning it over in our minds in order to receive its full blessing. I hope that's one of the profit of this series for your spiritual life as it has been for mine. This morning's psalm has become one of my favorites. Let's read it, Psalm 126. Listen carefully. These are God's words. A Song of ascent. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow Will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, by that same Spirit who inspired the psalmist to write, by that same Spirit who filled the people of old as they sung, perhaps together, we pray that that same Spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would respond with grateful hearts, that we would recognize Your goodness to us and Your faithful promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed that I read the little words in italics under the psalm heading. That's called a superscription. And in the original Hebrew text of the Bible, it's part of the inspired text. It's not an editorial edition later on that... Um, adds on. It's, it's considered a, a part of the substance of the psalm, and, and often these superscriptions give us context. Why is that important? Imagine your doctor gives you two prescriptions. You know nothing about medicine, nothing about these um, pharmaceuticals that are uh, being prescribed for you, and um, the accompanying instruction is, this one's only for when you can't sleep, But this one you need to take every single day because of your serious condition. The the context, the instructions that come along with these medicines are incredibly important to differentiate this one versus that one. And and the the superscription at the beginning of the psalm likewise gives us instructions through the context. This one, this song is for when you and the rest of God's people make your annual pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, to Zion for the annual feasts totally different feel than if it had said, this one's for times of grief, to give you a thread of hope in the midst of despair. Like so many Psalms, 126 has a thread of sorrow, but it's meant to be sung, we're told, in the superscription. It's meant to be sung during one of the most festive occasions of the year when all of these Israelites from all across the land would go up to Jerusalem. That's why these songs of ascent, twenty—I'm uh, sorry, fifteen of them from 120 through 134—are so named, because wherever else you lived, you'd go up to Jerusalem, which was on a, a plateau in the Judean Mountain Range. It had higher altitude, and you'd literally ascend to Jerusalem, ascend to the place where God met His people in the temple, singing these pilgrim songs. So, what does Psalm 126 have to say to us today as pilgrims? Two things we'll look at, the real source of joy and the fruitfulness of tears, the real source of joy. The heart of the psalm is in verse 3. It's a confident statement, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. It's a turning point because before that verse, The psalm is looking to the past, and after that verse, verses 4 through 6, the psalm in a prayer is expecting God to work in the future. And that's an element of what makes this psalm such a great discipleship song for pilgrims like us on the way because it's a pattern of what uh, we do as we walk by faith. We, We look to the past. We look to how God has intersected with human history in time and space, the the climax of which is the sending of the Son, who lived a perfect life, who died a substitute death, who rose in victory from the grave. We look to the past, and that becomes the basis for any confidence, any trust that God will continue to work in our interests and will make all things new in the future. If verse 3 is the heart of the psalm, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. As I said already, it still has a thread of sorrow, which shouldn't be a surprise because there are more Psalms of lament than there are any other kinds of Psalm. Um, so, how, if this is such a common factor in these songs of Israel, how is it that joy and sorrow so comfortably and commonly coexist? Some people have this image of Christianity, I'll call it a caricature, that when you place your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, when you commit to a life of faith, you give up joys and pleasures. That's the caricature you stop throwing parties, you stop attending parties, you're supposed to get serious, you put on your dour, Puritan face, and basically wait for Jesus to take you home. It's, it's the caricature of Christians removing themselves from the realities of life and reading our Bibles and just looking to the sky for when Jesus comes back, and then we can live life. But that's so far from the picture of faith in the Bible. So, so far from the, the elements of joy that are mixed in with the reality of a broken world and our fallenness as creatures. Joy, for example, is number two in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. Joy was the background of Jesus' first ever miracle, John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. It was not beneath Jesus to keep a party going strong when the couple ran out of wine, which was a cultural taboo. And if we hit the fast-forward button in His ministry, right after His final words to His disciples about keeping uh, His commandments, obeying Him, He adds this, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and... That your joy may be complete. In a sense, we might say, it'd be an appropriate statement, one of the reasons Jesus came was on a joy producing mission. Here's where real life gets in the way when we talk about joy. For some of you, it's tough to sing songs of joy. You've told me that over the years. Because the words that we're singing, the words on the screen, the, the words we hope that are, are, are reflective of our hearts seem uh, so often at odds with the struggle uh, and suffering of real life that you're going through. It, it feels wrong to be singing words that you don't feel. But, but even if you're on the other side of the spectrum and your life is mostly free from suffering, at least right now, whether, whether you're in the midst of it or whether you're free from it, the common mistake is looking for joy in all the wrong places. You think that joy will come when circumstances all line up like the conditions required for a lunar eclipse, you know, the, the orbit of the earth and the, and the moon and the time of day for you to see and there's no cloud cover, everything lines up in your life with circumstances and joy is produced. And what needs to line up? There's plenty of money to pay all the bills and have fun. My health, it's strong. I have plenty of friendships and rich relationships, all of which affirm me, all of which are harmonious. No one's fighting with each other. No one's arguing. And, and to, to put a cherry on top of all of that, you want a sunny, non-humid day that is around 82 degrees and when all those circumstances line up, joy is experienced until you bang your head into a nail on the wall. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep it real here, men's barbecue stuff from yesterday, or you stub your toe, or you catch a virus, or you're just trying to relax on the shore, and this guy from the city, always from the city, is just being obnoxious. He doesn't get the social rules of relaxing on the beach, and joy disappears. But real joy is far more substantial than daily circumstances. We're looking, we're looking for it in all the wrong places. Often while looking for joy, you spend lots of energy avoiding disappointment by not getting close enough to anyone for them to hurt you. You spend lots of energy managing anxiety by controlling every little detail in life so that there are no surprises. You know everything there is to know. Everything's in its place. You spend lots of energy numbing the heart through escapes, like a little bit too much food or drink or gaming, a little porn, a little binge-watching of your favorite dramas, which almost inevitably only fuel your futile search for joy in all the wrong places. Author Eugene Peterson, a retired pastor, he says this, American society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. That's a calorie-rich statement right there. American society is a bored, gluttonous, Why? We've tried everything. We're looking for novelty. What's the next best thing? Gluttonous. More is never enough. King. I'll decide what will make me happy. Employing a court jester. That's the escapes. You know, entertain me. Show me something I haven't seen. Make me laugh to divert it after an overindulgent meal. What we're chasing after so often is never able to satisfy. These are imposters of joy. And yet, at the same time, if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it follow that the maturing follower of Jesus Christ is going to experience more and more joy as he or she grows in faith? That doesn't mean everything lines up the way you expect it to. All your circumstances of life just kind of. Uh, come about exactly the way you'd want it. It doesn't mean everything is fixed, that's broken, everything that is healed, that that is is sick about your life. What it does mean, though, is that somehow walking by faith with Jesus, trusting in His promises, the Bible promises, means greater and greater joy. How is that possible? The end of Psalm 126 points us in the right direction. Secondly, the fruitfulness of tears. Here's sort of an obvious statement that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, if, if you understand biblical Christianity and, and you commit your life to Jesus, that brings about higher joys. So, for example, faith in Jesus brings forgiveness of sin and there is freedom from shame and guilt. That's a higher joy, isn't it? Makes sense. Um, Faith in Jesus means being declared a son or a daughter of the King. You're drawn into an intimate relationship of faith with the Creator Himself. That's a higher joy. Faith in Jesus brings higher joys, but faith in Jesus also often brings greater sorrows, So, the obvious is new life in Christ makes the highs higher, but maybe the not-so-obvious is new life in Christ also makes the lows lower. Why do I say that? Um, This is what I've experienced both in my personal life and in my counseling ministry. I've often seen that in the emotional security of healthy relationships, we'll call it intimacy with one another, along with the spiritual security of salvation we can call that intimacy with god when those two things are paired gospel power so very often gives a person new courage to face dark chapters in their past painful family experiences lows get lower but that's a good thing because that's the only path for real healing to bring the dysfunction and disease of sin Oftentimes, other people sin against you, but always also your contribution of your own sin. Healing can only come when we bring the dysfunction and disease of sin into the light of God's healing power, that He might make it new, that He might bring it back to life without the security of knowing that you're forgiven because Jesus went to the cross in your place. He paid the penalty of sin. W- without the forgiveness of, uh, of sin in, in, the, in the heart of the gospel, it's too threatening to admit your mistakes, your failures, because what will other people think of me? How can I stand in front of people if they know how big of a failure I am, how big of a screw-up I, I am? The gospel power gives you that kind of security. Without the gospel, without the sure confidence that you are loved no matter what, it's too scary to face the pain of family dysfunction or relational rejection. Because to whom will I belong? Who will love me? Who will affirm me? Will I matter to anyone? But with the gospel, that assurance is given to you. The Father could not love you more because when He looks at you in Christ, He sees His Son and approves of you perfectly. A number of our grace stories follow this pattern. When I became a Christian, everything didn't automatically get fixed, but God gave me power, He gave me confidence, He gave me security to begin to deal with the messiness of my life. And today, I'm a work in progress, but I am tasting more and more gospel renewal and healing as I walk with Jesus. That's such a, a, a typical grace story amongst the 40-plus that we've been privileged to hear over the last six or seven years. In my experience, I'll go further on the lows um, of the life. Um, in my experience, a lot of people who reject eternity in a life of faith have a hard time addressing death because it's the end. Finality has nothing beyond it. An educated guess I'd make is if you ask hospice nurses, my guess is that they'd tell you that a family's willingness to let go, a family's um, experience with peace in their loved one's final hours and days, has a strong correlation with a life of faith. As a pastor, I know this from my own experience in conducting funerals. Big difference preparing to bury the dead when that person and their relatives uh, live a life of faith, trust in something beyond, not of their own doing, but by the promises of God. The calling of biblical Christians is to face the lows of life, including the ultimate low, which is death, and then working backwards, everything of a lesser evil, that none of us want to face, but the calling of biblical Christians is to face even death, because we have the security of trusting God's promise. Behold, I am making all things new. It's in the last pages of the Bible. It's made possible because He raised His Son from the dead as the first fruits, as the as the pattern of what is to come—new life from death. And so Paul says to the Thessalonians, um, "We grieve." but as those with hope. There's a difference in the lows getting lower. They don't drag us down. They don't cause us to um, stay in depression and anxiety and fear. They remind us of what cost Jesus has paid. And and that points to a distinct sorrow for biblical Christians that should grow deeper and deeper as we mature in Christ. That that sounds backwards, doesn't it? That, That we should be more sorrowful, as we trust in the living Savior, but this is what we should be more sorrowful about in particular, the reality of our sin. We should grieve and mourn over our sin because if we grow in Christ, we realize more and more fully the price that had to be paid. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. That, that struck me in the second service, singing it for the second time. And as I sung it, I thought to myself, is that right? And I'd say to you, without having th- had much time to think of it. Absolutely, that's right. We will never know. Why? Because Jesus went to the hell of the cross so that you and I might not have to. We will never know what Jesus has known by personal experience. And that should bring deeper sorrow over sin because we see that price, at least bits and pieces of it more and more as we row in our faith. Joy and sorrow should both grow as we follow after Jesus. That only makes sense because when we look at Him, the Savior, we notice that He was both a rejoicer and a weeper. He didn't hide His emotions. He lived a very emotional life. He was both a singer and a griever. And the two are powerfully combined in His greatest display of love. Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. That that has to be one of the most striking verses in all of Scripture. God the Son, the King, the perfect, obedient Son who never sinned, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. If that seems paradoxical, it is. It is. at the heart of the gospel. The greatest victory was only made possible through willing defeat. In His last address to His disciples, Jesus said this in John chapter 16, "'Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish.'" because of her joy that a child is born into the world, so with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Ultimately, we worship a God whose salvation plan culminates in the wiping away of tears, Revelation chapter 21. Next to last chapter in the Bible, this is the kind of God we worship. He will remove every cause For mourning, even death itself. Christian joy, folks, is not feeling good about ourselves. It's not feeling good about our lives, how things are working out. Christian joy is all about feeling good about God, about his uh, unchanging character, uh, about his sure and certain promises, about his plan of salvation that will be consummated when Jesus the Son returns on the last day. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You could also translate that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces character, perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. We boast what? Not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, not in what we have achieved. We boast in the glory of God. He is our anchor, He's our foundation. God's record of faithfulness, verses 1 through 3, again, become the basis for our faith-filled hope in prayer of what God will do in the future, verses 4 through 6. How will He do that? How will He bring blessing? How will He bring about His promises? The prayer of verse 4 asks for God's blessing like streams in the Negev. If you've ever lived in the desert southwest of the U.S., You have a a better, um, you have an easier time understanding the imagery behind this picture far more easily than us northeast suburbanites, even after two weeks of flash flooding. Here's a picture of the dark side of the imagery. In late April of this year, 10 Israeli teens were killed as they were hiking in the southern desert region of Israel called the Negev. This is a picture of the Negev. This is what verse 4 is referring to. In an instant, a sunny, dry day, because of a rainstorm, turned these dry, rocky, sandy gullies and riverbeds into a raging torrent of destruction. Obviously, verse 4 is not talking about tragedy. It's painting the opposite coin, uh, side of the, the coin in, in terms of blessing. Why? If you are a, a resident of a desert region like the Negev, the rains that would come were signs of life because that water would fill every little crack and hole and low point in the area. And before you know it, flowers are coming out of rocks. Grasses are turning green. And water... For a desert dweller was always a sign of life, ultimate refreshment. The second picture of blessing in verses 5 and 6, in contrast, demands a lot more patience, and it's an agricultural picture. Planting seed eventually, down the line, after a lot of hard work, leads to a harvest of crops. Tears will turn into joy. Weeping will turn into singing. Going out will turn into coming home, but not yet. There's waiting that's required. In the Christian life, we don't just sit around and wait passively for sorrows to go away that they might turn into joys. We we, we shouldn't live like, you know, I'm sick, I can't do anything, I can't be of any use to anybody, my ministry and my life stop, but God, when You make me better, then I can resume life. When You take away this thorn in my flesh. When you remove my suffering, then I can proceed with. No. For the Christian, the calling is to find joy in the midst of the suffering. Not only after they hope that suffering goes away. How's that possible? Because Jesus was the man of sorrows. We sung about that. Through his life and death, The man of sorrows was able to bring about highest joy. How is this possible? Because Jesus was the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy. And through His life, death, and resurrection, He showed Himself to be the King who brought about life. In the reality of the cross, a symbol of death, we are able to rejoice because Jesus is the one who hung on that cross, not us. And through His death, we find life lastly, here's what's so striking about verse 5. It says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. It's not sowing while crying tears. It's sowing with tears. I think it's appropriate to think of the imagery as the the farmer scattering seed, yes, in an arid um, region like much of Israel, and The tears, this is the imagery, this is the graphic analogy, the tears are watering the seed. We're sowing with tears. The tears are are not just something that that we need to put up with until God takes them away. The tears are actually instrumental in the fruitfulness of joy. One writer says this about Psalm 126, miracles of the past are measures of the future, dry places are potential rivers. Hard toil and good seed are the certain prelude to harvest. Do you believe this? Can you see that God's perfect record of faithfulness culminates in the sending of His Son, in His life, death, and resurrection, which gives you the basis for measures of the future? In the midst of desert, in the midst of uh, the drought of your life, lack of fruitfulness, do you trust that God can cause streams to flow out of nothing, all of a sudden, at least in a season of refreshment? And would you dare to believe that God, even now, is using your tears, your sorrow to bring about a harvest that will fully and finally satisfy you? This is a song for pilgrims on the way, who know we are not yet home. But by faith in Jesus, we trust that Jesus is preparing a place for us, and He will bring us there. Let's pray to Him. Lord God, thank You for the good news, the gospel of Psalm 126. Thank You for the the confidence that we have that Jesus, as a true Israelite, sung these songs perhaps even as He went up to Jerusalem for the last time, knowing that He would never leave, knowing that it would be His end. Thank You, Lord, for the glory of the Savior, Jesus, who alone makes it possible for You to restore our good fortunes. We trust in You to do just that, to finish what You have begun. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.